Heavenly Father, truly we are so blessed in Christ. You've given us so much more than we deserve. You've satisfied our greatest need in Christ alone. Father, even this morning as we turn our attention to the Word of God, may we not grow distracted. May we focus in on what you have for us this morning, Father. May we listen with open ears. Whatever defenses that we have up, may you tear them down. May your spirit work for your glory through the word. Father, change us this morning. To a mighty work among us, open our eyes to our need. Open our eyes to the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that this would not just be a routine that we go through. It's, it's Sunday morning and so we gather that we would gather and we would worship. We would not just show up, but that we would open our hearts and our minds to your working through your word. Accomplish your purpose here this morning, Father. Be lifted up. Be magnified. May you give me boldness, authority, Clarity to proclaim the truth of the Word of God. We pray all this in the name of Christ alone. Amen. We're people who are always looking for satisfaction, we're always looking for it often in the wrong place. See, satisfaction rarely lasts in this life. I, I remember growing up playing sports, not just growing up, but sometimes now, where I'll just be, my body is just longing for water. And there's nothing as sweet as that first sip of water. It's satisfying. But it's not long before it's gone. It's not long before you need more. Or when, when you've been standing for a while and your legs are just killing you and your back hurts and you finally get to sit down. It's satisfying. But it doesn't last. It's not long before your back hurts from sitting down and then you have to stand up again. Or when, it, when you get a new phone or a new car or, or a new toy if you're a child. It brings satisfaction for, for a little bit, but then it's gone. It doesn't last. There is one who gives satisfaction that lasts. There is a God who satisfies. And in Christ, he has met our greatest need. And that's what we see as we come to this passage this morning. A Savior who satisfies. 
As we work our way through this passage, we'll see the God who moves, the God who saves, and the God who speaks. As we start in verse 32, we see the God who moves. In verses 32 to 36, the God who moves. Starts out, verse 32, the Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things. We're picking up where we left off last week. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's at the Feast of of Booths or Tabernacles. And last week, you may remember, his, his brothers wanted him to come with great fanfare. And Jesus said, it's not yet time for me to come because my time has not yet come. So he comes quietly, he sneaks into the city. But it's not long before he's standing on the temple steps, boldly proclaiming the truth of God. Teaching. This teaching causes quite a stir among the crowds. Some say, this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. And they believe, and some say, he's an imposter, he's dangerous, let's take him. So as we ended last week, that's, that's kind of where we ended. Verse 30 says, therefore, they sought to take him. But verse 31 says, many of the people believed. And so you have these two responses to Christ here. He's, he's been preaching, he's been speaking, and there's two responses. Some want to take him, some believe in him. As we come to verse 32, this conversation is ongoing. The people are murmuring, they're talking, they're going back and forth. And the Pharisees hear this. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. These officers are a kind of police force to keep the peace in and around the temple. They're made up of of Levites, those who serve the temple. It's interesting to note here that that as Levites, these are religiously trained men. We'll see that later on as that comes in. It's also interesting to note that they're sent here in verse 32, and then we don't hear about them again until verse 45, which is probably actually at least a day, probably a few days later. So they go out, and they're in the crowd, and they're sitting, and they're listening, and they're watching. And they're waiting for their opportunity to pounce, to take Jesus without causing a riot. But the Pharisees, the chief priests, they, they see what is going on. They send the officers to take him. We already know from chapter 7, even back to chapter 5, that their goal is to kill him. And so their officers are there. They are waiting for the opportunity to take him. But as they're in this crowd, and as they're listening, Jesus goes on in verse 33. Jesus said to them, the crowd who was gathered there, I shall be with you a little while longer. Time is short. At this point in Jesus' ministry, it's probably about six months until the crucifixion. Just a little while longer I will be here. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me. And not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. Seems like an odd statement by Jesus, but really what Jesus is doing in saying this is he's accomplishing two tasks. It's a statement about himself, 
who he is, but it's also a warning. It's both a statement about Christ and a warning to those who are listening. The statement is this. I was, I came, I will be. Notice he says, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. I was. Before I came, I was. And I was sent. I am. I'm standing here. I'm preaching. And I will be. I am going somewhere. It's a statement about the divinity of Jesus Christ. It harkens back to John 1. When the word was, the word was with God, the word was God. And then the word became, the word took on flesh. And the word will be. Harkens back just a few verses earlier, also to verse 28 and 29, where Jesus is speaking. He cried out on the temple steps. He, he, he taught in the temple saying, you both know me. You think you know me. You think you know where I am from. But I have not come of myself. He who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Christ has been sent. He's not here by accident. He was in eternity past. He's always been. He is now on a mission sent by God. And he will be. He's going back. This is what I mean by point one, the God who moves. See, Christ is on a mission. God has moved toward sinners. For God so loved the world, as, as, as we see in John 3, as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We're told elsewhere, while we were yet sinners, Christ died. While we were yet sinners, separated from God, under the just wrath of a holy God, we chose to be there. We put ourselves there. We are sinners. And yet God moved towards us. The amazing grace of God. To move towards sinners. I was. I was the word. I was with God. I was God. And yet here I am now. Because God loves you. Because I love you. I have been sent on a mission. And so he sent me. And I will go back. I will accomplish this mission. It serves as a very clear statement about who Christ is. Yet at the same time, it serves as a warning. Because time is running out. Your time is short. My time here on earth is short. Your time to believe on me is short. So believe. 
Believe now. It's sad that last statement, where I am, you cannot come. Sad reality is that Israel rejected Jesus, and to this day, they still cannot find him. Now is the time to believe. I am standing here before you. Soon I will go. Now believe. Like we've seen all throughout John, though, in verse 35, the people don't understand. They misunderstand. The Jews said among themselves, where does he intend to go? That we should not find him. Does he intend to go under the dispersion? A common term referring to all the Jewish people who were spread across the Roman Empire and beyond? Does he intend to, to go out among them, away from us? To get away from the, the threat to his life? Among the Greeks, to teach the Greeks? There's almost a bit of foreshadowing here, as Christ himself will not go, but his message will spread to the world, as we see in the book of Acts and, and following. It will spread all across, not just the, the Roman Empire, but the world, to the ends of the earth. What is this that he said, you will seek me and not find me, and where I am you cannot come? We've completely misunderstood what Jesus is saying here. You, you think it would have been a clue when he says, I go to him who sent me. Already some in this crowd have put together, have already some have uh, believed, put together that this is the Messiah, the Christ. You would think that when he says then that I'm going to him who sent me, they would start putting this together. That must be God. He's going back to heaven. But they don't get that. They, they, they miss it here. Where is he going? What's going on? What becomes clear in this section is that Christ has been sent by God for a purpose. He was, he is, he will be. The God who moves. Then in verses 37 to 43, we see the God who saves. On the last day, the great day of the feast. Now we need to pause here for a second, because in order to really understand the, the weight of what Jesus is saying here, we need to understand what is going on at this feast. Last week we talked about what the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, is. It's like our Thanksgiving. It's a harvest celebration. They're remembering God's provision in the wilderness as he led them out of Egypt, as they lived in, in tents, as they were a nomadic people across the wilderness, how God provided for them, God led them. At the same time, they're thanking God for the harvest that has been provided and they're looking to the future. The Old Testament, as the prophets look forward to, to a time when they will thrive, when water will flow. When crops will thrive. In the midst of this 
feast, this celebration, there's a water ritual. It was not necessarily prescribed back uh, in, in the law, but it had sprung up over time. So each day, a priestly procession would, would go from the temple. It would take a golden vessel down to the, the pool of Shalom. It would carry it back through the water gate where they would pause and, and trumpets would sound, celebrating the occasion, drawing attention to it. This priestly procession would go back. They would circle the altar, and then they would pour the water off onto the, off, onto the altar as an offering to God. The water symbolized the provision of water for crops. It also looked back to as God provided water in the wilderness, through the rocks, even. And it looks forward to the promises of the coming kingdom. Ezekiel 17, water that flows from Jerusalem. Zechariah 13, Isaiah 12, 3, when they're, they're told that in this kingdom you'll drink deeply, you'll drink of, of the wells of salvation, these never-ending wells of water. So there's a connection between what God has done, what God is doing, and what God will do. It's in the midst of all this, on the last day, the great day of the feast, when they would do this water ritual seven times. It doesn't tell us at this point where, at what time Jesus stands, but I can just imagine as they are going back and forth doing this ritual, Christ stands on the temple steps and he says if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink Jesus stands and he cries out he's drawing attention to himself publicly boldly clearly if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink he who believes in me as the scripture has said out of his heart will flow rivers of living water What Jesus is essentially saying is, I am the fulfillment of what this ritual looks to. I am the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles and what you are looking to, what you're longing for, and I'm standing right here. Won't you accept me? Won't you listen? Won't you see? Time is short. If anyone thirsts, Really, the question is not if anyone thirsts. The question is not, do you thirst? The question is, do you know that you thirst? Because we all thirst. Because we are all sinners. And all of our greatest need is salvation. Do you know that you thirst? Do you know that you need If you do, come to me and drink. Come, it's an invitation to me, Christ, the one who satisfies, and be satisfied.
come to me and drink. I can meet that need. He who believes or, or he who drinks, he who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Will flow living water, the idea of, of never ending satisfaction that lasts, that knows no end, that is met in abundance, a need that is met in abundance, a river, not a trickle, not a stream, rivers of living water. It is everyone's greatest need to drink deeply of the soul satisfying Sin, covering, wrath-appeasing, sanctifying water that Christ offers. This is an offer of salvation. I am standing before you. Won't you believe? You thirst. Do you know that you thirst? I can meet that need. I can more than meet that need. I can give you an abundance of living water. This he spoke concerning the Spirit. This, this living water flowing out of the heart of the man who believes. This he spoke concerning the Spirit. Whom those believing, this is a guarantee, in him would receive. Those who place their faith in Christ, they're not just saved. It's not just that that need, need is met and then you're left to yourselves, but you are then, will be given the Spirit who will indwell, who will equip, who will assure, who will seal. God does not just provide for your salvation, He's provided for your sanctification. I will meet your need and I will keep meeting your needs. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given. We know when it was poured out at Pentecost. Because Jesus was not yet glorified. Once again, as we saw last week, we see a purpose, a timing in what God is doing in Christ. John 3. When Mary wants Jesus to do his first miracle at the wedding, what does he say? The time's not right. John 6. When the people are offended at what he said, he says, what will you say when I ascend? When I go to the cross, when I rise, when I ascend into heaven? That is coming. John 7, earlier in John 7, the time had not yet come for him to go to Jerusalem. In fact, it says, the time has not come three times. Here, Christ says, in a little while I will. Here again, Jesus says, it says that Jesus was not yet glorified. He would be. There is a time table. And everything happens exactly on time. And Christ is following that to a T. The incarnation was not something that was thrown together last minute. It was not a last minute reaction. Oh, they sinned. We've got we to react. 
It's a plan driven by the love of God for sinners. There's purpose behind it. There's timing in it. There's precision to it. Come and drink. Come and be satisfied. Have your greatest need met. Just believe. And we see the response. Verse 40, therefore many of the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, truly this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. Now we've talked through John how the prophet is looking to a prophet like Moses, as mentioned in Deuteronomy. I think it's interesting to, to pause here and to note that at this time in history, they saw this prophet greater than Moses and the Christ or the Messiah as two separate. Just as they struggled to, be, to, to see the, the suffering servant and the victorious Messiah as the same man, so they suffer to see the prophet and the Christ as the same. They see them as two separate. We have the perspective of looking back. We see that Christ is the prophet. Christ is the Christ. He is the suffering servant. He is the conquering king. He is our perfect high priest. We see that this is all looking to one man provided by God in Christ. Fully God and fully man. But they can't see that. And so what they're saying here is he, he's the prophet or, or he's the Christ, the Messiah. He's a great, great one sent by God. He's one of them. He's someone. He's special. He's unique. But some said, well, the Christ come out of Galilee. Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David, from the town of Bethlehem, as Micah 5.2 very clearly states where David was. There's irony here. In fact, one of the things that you'll notice through the book of John is there's lots of irony. Part of the irony here is that the thing that is tripping them up is something that could very easily be answered. If they would go back and look at the records. If they would just ask Jesus. If they bothered to really look, they would have seen that Jesus was indeed born in Bethlehem. This very problem that they are rising, raising up is not a problem at all. There's a clear answer. If they will just look, they will ask. But there's a division. Again, we saw that in verses 30 to 31. This division of those who believe and those who want to take him. These are two extreme reactions. Either he is the Christ, he's the Messiah, he's who he says he is and we believe... On the other side, he's a phony. He deserves to die. He deserves to be arrested. Let's take him. And this division is only growing among the people the more he speaks. But we know who he is. We have the privilege of, of reading through John. Not just through John, but through Matthew, Mark, Luke, through the New Testament. 
We have the privilege of being in a place in history we can look back and we can see. We know who he is. He is the prophet. He is the Christ. He is the Savior who satisfies, who saves, if they will but believe. So we've seen the God who moves, the God who saves. Then we see the God who speaks. Verse 44. Some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers. Here's the officers showing up again. So this whole time, as Christ has been speaking, as the people have been going back and forth, they've been in the crowd. They've been listening. They've been taking notes. They've been paying attention. They've been waiting for their chance to take him. But they don't. They come back to the chief priests, to the Pharisees. They report. And this authoritative body says to them, why have you not brought him? We sent you out with a very clear mission. Go and get him. Now you're back empty-handed. Where is he? What's going on? Where's the disconnect? And the officers answered. Now remember, these are not just stupid men. They're not just those who are strong and just brute force with no brains. These are Levites. They've been religiously trained. They know. They know. And the officer answered, no man ever spoke like this man. No man spoke like him. You didn't hear him. You should have been there. I don't know that these Levites actually believed, but it, it's remarkable that what they say here is infinitely more than what they mean to say. They're just saying there's something unique going on here. But surely this man doesn't speak like any other man because he is not like any other man. In fact, what they accidentally say here is infinitely more true than what they meant to say. There's something special going on. There's something unique. This man is not like other men. You did not hear him. Is that not what we see throughout the life of Christ? Even as a boy, as he sits and teaches in the temple, and they, are, they marvel at his teaching? As a young man beginning his ministry, as they marvel at the authority with which he speaks? Even now, as they are trying to take him, to kill him, to arrest him, they come back and say, no man ever spoke like this man. Did you guys, you've got to hear him. The Pharisees answered them, are you also deceived? Are you also deceived? Again here we see irony. They're accusing the Levites of having been deceived, but it's the Pharisees who are deceived here. It's the Pharisees who can't see clearly. It's the Pharisees who are blinded from the truth because of their own self-righteousness. Are you also deceived? You, you Levites who, who know the law? You religiously trained, you know. How can even you be deceived? 
Have any of us, the Pharisees or the rulers, have we believed in him? Who do you think you are? This crowd that does not, that not know the law, they're cursed. And you're listening to them over us. Who do you think you are? Again, there's more irony. In verse 48, have the rulers of Pharisees believed in him? Well, actually, in just a few verses, there's a man called Nicodemus who is one of them who's going to speak up. And I don't know if at this point Nicodemus yet believes, but he's on the road to belief. Nicodemus, who's the one who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, he went and he spoke to Jesus. In fact, here he will speak up for Jesus. There's at least one of them who's interested. In fact, in just a few chapters, in chapter 12, verse 42, John will tell us that many, even among the religious leaders, believed in him. And so really what they're saying is, none of us have believed in him when really many of them have. But what's sad is their refusal to even listen. He came into his own and his own received him not. You see, the problem here is not that God has not spoken, it's that they will not listen. The men who should, above all, be listening. The one who should be leading the crowd to come to Christ are the ones who want to kill him. They're the ones who won't, won't listen. Nicodemus, one of them, the one who came to Jesus by night, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? See, Nicodemus sees what is going on, and Nicodemus says, how can you judge if you won't even listen? You're not even willing to listen to him. You're just writing him off. How can you judge? You can't judge fairly. You're not judging fairly. Notice how they answer. Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. They don't even bother to answer Nicodemus. They simply attack Nicodemus. Often you can tell when you're in a discussion with someone, in an argument with someone, you can tell that, that, that you are on the right track when they stop discussing and they start attacking. Are you from Galilee? Are you like him, one of them? A low life? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. Which, that, that's not even true, because Jonah and Nahum were from Galilee. So prophets have arisen out of Galilee. They're, they're not even worried about being right here. They're worried about their position. They don't care about what is true. They care about being right. In their eyes. They've dug in their heels and they're going to stick with this position regardless. And that's a scary place to be. Because the problem here 
It's not that God has not spoken and not that he has not spoken clearly. It's that they refuse to listen. As we come to the end of this passage, we see a God who's moved toward man. A God who offers salvation to man. A God who has spoken and spoken clearly. We see a people in rebellion. A people who won't listen. I think as you come to the end of this passage, there's a couple points of application. And the first, as I say every single week throughout the book of John, every passage is written for this purpose, that you might believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and that having believed that you might have life. So the first point of application is this. If you have never placed your faith in Christ, then today is the day. Believe. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And our sin separates us from God. But God. When we were in our sins, pursued us. Christ came for us. He died on the cross for your sins. For my sins. He took the punishment that you and I deserve. He reached out to you. He died for you. The gospel's been proclaimed to you. The question is not, what has God done? The question is, what will you do? Will you listen? Will you respond? Or like the religious leaders, will you write Jesus off without even really listening to him? Without fairly listening to him? I would say to you this morning that the offer still stands. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Come even this morning and drink deeply. The soul-satisfying sin-forgiving Christ. Won't you believe? Even now. Maybe you would say this morning, I'm not, I'm not ready to believe, but I'm interested and I have some questions. If that's where you are, that's great. Seek me out. Come forward, even as, as we sing our closing song in just a second, and I will go out with you and I'll open the Bible and I'll answer your questions. I'll do my best to answer them. I'll do my best to point you to Christ. I don't want to force you into a decision. I want to answer your questions. If you're ready right now, come forward and let's go. Let me introduce you to Christ this morning. Believers, first thing I would say is stand in awe of the God who sought you and saved you. The God who satisfied the greatest need that you have and who equipped you with his spirit. Do you remember how in awe you were of the gospel of Jesus Christ when you were first saved? Who am I to be loved by God? 
Are you still moved by the gospel? Are you still in awe of a God who would reach out to you? Even in your sin? Have you grown cold? Have you grown bored of the gospel? Let this passage this morning grab you by the shoulders and shake you and say, Wake up! Stand in wonder of the God who sought you, who saved you, who's equipped you. Wake up, because Christ is coming again. Wake up, because there are still thirsty, thirsty souls that need satisfying, and you have the answer. So go and make disciples. Secondly, search your hearts because how easy is it for us to become like the Pharisees? To be blinded by religion, by tradition, from the glorious truth of a relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe this morning you've grown more in love with the idea of God than with God himself. call to you also, wake up. Reevaluate. Refocus. The Christian life is not about what you do. It's about who you are in Christ. It's about what God has done for you. So may God humble us. May the practice of our faith in public never replace the wonder of the faith of our faith in our hearts. May we be a people who have humble hearts, not big heads. Stand in wonder of the God who has saved you this morning.